of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Messiah, Jesus. And you will see that the focus in these few verses is on the work of the Holy Spirit and how it revealed and manifested in the life of Jesus. So please open with me Isaiah 11 from verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. And I want us to look at this in parallel with Revelation chapter 4, which is a scene in heaven and one of the most amazing chapters that pulls the curtain aside and gives us a glimpse into the glory of what is before God's throne. And we've read the whole chapter, but specifically look at, with me at verse 5. So verse 5 says that from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that God has seven spirits. We know that there's one Holy Spirit. But what this means is that there's seven aspects or seven forms of the Holy Spirit. And our text out of Isaiah illuminates these seven aspects to us. So let's go back to Isaiah 11, verse 2. And it starts by saying, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. So the first aspect or the form of the Holy Spirit is that the Spirit is Lord. The second is that the spirit of wisdom. The third, the spirit of understanding. The fourth, the spirit of counsel. The fifth, the spirit of might. The sixth, the spirit of knowledge. And the seventh, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. So do you see a crescendo building up and the culminating manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus is the fear of the Lord. Can you see that the fear of the Lord that Jesus had in his time here on earth was imparted to him by the Holy Spirit? And if Jesus needed the fear of the Lord, and he was the sinless Son of God, how much more do you and I need the fear of the Lord? We all remember the red upside-down crosses last year at the Dark Festival. For us as Christians, for me personally, it felt like we're mocking God. And we're seeing and being pushed on a lot of topics. Euthanasia, abortion, marriage, gender. And why are these things happening? Why is our society so quick to push the boundaries of what us as Christians have accepted for thousands of years? And one of the greatest indictments that Paul ever leveled against the Romans is in Romans 13, where he said to them that the fear of, Lord, of the Lord is not before your eyes. And I put to you today that as much as that has always been true of sinners, that there are many professing Christians and churches that do not have the fear of the Lord. It's because we avoid to talk about it. 
we don't like talking about sin and wrath and condemnation. We also don't like to talk about our sinfulness and how depraved we are and that there's nothing good in us because we always like to uplift ourselves and make God smaller. But be honest. If you think deep in your soul, do you want a God of wrath and of curse because of sin? I think most Christians would say, no, thank you. I serve a God that is good and forgives people for good things. We don't want a God that inflicts curse because of sin. We want a God that forgives. But I believe that we've lost the fear of the Lord because we don't know God. We have forgotten who God is. Because knowing who the Lord is truly is fearing the Lord. When we understand who God is, there's no other response but fearing Him. Fearing God means that in your mind and in your heart and in your soul, God is so great and so powerful and so just and so omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, that you do not dare to turn away from Him. The only response you would ever have is to turn to Him. Fearing God means understanding His wrath. Our new Christianity is very big on understanding salvation. But why do we need salvation in the first place? The first step is understanding our depravity and God's wrath for our sin. And that points to Jesus and the need for salvation. Fearing God is not just another condition of the covenant. Fearing God is the way in which we do covenant keeping. Fearing God is the way in which we come to Jesus. It's the way in which we approach Him. It is humble. It's modest. It is shameful. It's with a broken heart. And we come to Jesus not expecting anything or presuming anything. That is fearing the Lord. Psalm 104 talks about how God looks after everything in creation. It goes into a lot of detail and then summarizes in the end saying that when God turns his face away, the creatures of earth are terrified. And it says when he looks at the earth, the earth trembles. So I just want to stop there for a second and let that breathe. And do you realize what that is saying? That when God looks away, the animals in this creation has the good sense to be terrified. And the rest of creation trembles when God turns his face towards it. And the rest of creation is mountains and trees, which is essentially rocks and wood. And rock and wood has more sense than us, sinful people. The mountains know and the trees know that they need to tremble before the Lord when He turns His face towards them. And it's a great psalm. Go and read it. Psalm 104. 
So I'm here today to say to you, tremble if you ever have any inclination to turn away from this God. We read in Exodus 20 how fearful the Lord is. Woe is old language for may it never happen. Trouble comes to all that do not have the fear of the Lord. But the fear of the Lord is not what you may think. So the word fear brings up in us negative connotations because us as humans experience different kinds of fear. So I want to clarify and mention a few things that the fear of the Lord is not. And the first is natural fear. Natural fear is the fear that we all get in frightening situations. It is like a, a soldier going into battle. And that is perfectly normal, but that is not the fear of the Lord. The second is demonic fear. 2 Timothy 1 verse 7 says that the spirit that the Lord gave us is not a spirit of fear. So it clearly indicates there is such a thing as a spirit of fear. The fear of the Lord is not this demonic fear. It is not religious fear. Isaiah 29 verse 13 said that these people's hearts are empty and their worship is, but mere, is by mere human rules. So religious fear is taught by men, not by God. It affects your outer conduct, but not your heart. Religious fear does not produce the kind of obedience that God desires. So the fear of the Lord is not religious fear. And it is not the fear of man. Proverbs says that the fear of man brings a snare. It's a trap. It makes man more important than God. It holds us back from obeying God. And it's the very opposite of trusting in God. And what is a very good example of the fear of man? is self-confidence. Because we build ourselves up to be more important than God. So we rely on our own confidence rather than in God. So these four fears, natural fear, demonic fear, religious fear, and the fear of man, tend to keep us from obeying God. And they do not produce the peace in your heart that comes from the fear of the Lord. And now in opposition to this, I will try and explain what this reverent fear is, what the Bible is talking about. So if it's not these four fears, what is it? And I'll use a few examples. I'll use something that I'll ask you to use your senses, that I'm going to describe something in this physical world to try and illustrate a spiritual concept. So imagine a tall, majestic mountain rising up out of the sea, and you standing on a very narrow path on the highest peak of that mountain. To the left, you're looking down, way down, and you see the sharp, jagged rocks, and to the bottom, the, the waves crashing against the base of this mountain. And to the right, you look over and you see mountains and a forest and fields and the sun rising, and it's a majestic view. And it brings up in you upliftment. Um, it's beautiful. It's, it's amazing. 
But at the same time, you are very conscious that this narrow path you're standing on, that even a half a step in the wrong direction will result in you losing your footing, falling down this cliff against the sharp rocks and being plunged into the sea. And the thought of this brings up a gasp in you, you know, like the fear of heights, and it makes your stomach tighten up. That is a very limited aspect into the glory and the awe we need to have for the Lord. He is amazingly beautiful, but He is amazingly dangerous at the same time. Another aspect, or another way to look at it, is that the fear of the Lord is being obedient to the first commandment. Exodus 20 verse 2 says, I am the Lord your God, I am Yahweh your God, and you shall have no other gods before me. If you say in your mind that I'm serving a good God and He will not send good people to hell, you are creating an image in your mind that is not true. The Bible says that's idolatry and idolaters will not enter heaven. Truly understanding and keeping the first commandment will bring forth the fear of the Lord in your life. Our God is a jealous God for His creation and nothing and I mean nothing, can stand before him, beside him, above him, and live. He's an all-consuming fire. Nothing can stand before God except his son Jesus, the anointed one. This first commandment, fear, is illustrated by a phrase that Jacob uses in Genesis. And it gives you, again, the veil being pulled away and a glimpse of what the culture was. So Jacob was with Laban and he worked many, many years and then he decided to flee from Laban. And Laban pursued him and when Laban caught up with Jacob, this is what Jacob replied. This is in Genesis 31, 42. Unless the God of my father and of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had been with me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. So we know who the God of Abraham is. The Bible talks about him a lot. That's the, the God of the covenant. But who was the fear of Isaac? It was Isaac's God. So it was so well known in that culture that the fear of somebody is their God. And this is a beautiful way to describe this reverent awe that you have for the Lord. If the Lord is not your first fear, or the thing you fear most in this world, I put to you that you are not obedient to the first commandment. Because to fear something else more than God means that you do not understand who God is. And you're making or putting another God before or beside Him. So back to our text in Isaiah. We saw in verse 2 the seven aspects of the Holy Spirit, the seven forms or the sevenfold nature of the Holy Spirit and how it culminated in the fear of the Lord. And then verse 3 goes on immediately saying that His delight, in other words, Jesus' delight, was in the fear of the Lord. So not only did the Holy Spirit 
impart the fear of the Lord to Jesus, but that was also Jesus' delight. And we see this manifested in Jesus' life. And one example is in Hebrews 5, verse 7, that says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, He offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save Him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submissions. The King James says he was heard because of his godly fear. So did you all hear that? Jesus was heard by God the Father. Why? What was there in Jesus that made the Father respond positively every time? And we are told here that Jesus prayed in the fear of the Lord. And that caused the Father to always answer positively. Remember Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane before the betrayal and the crucifixion? So Jesus was greatly troubled. More troubled than you and I would ever see. And he retreated to pray three times. And each time he concluded his prayer by saying, Nevertheless, your will not mine. Father, may your will be done, not mine. And this is the way of Jesus saying, you are my God. Nothing else is more important to me than your will. Not even my torture, not even my death. In Acts, Luke also sheds a bit of light on how the fear of the Lord was active in the early church. In Acts 9.31, he writes that the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord, they were encouraged by the Holy Spirit and increased in numbers. So even the fear of the Lord was present in the early church. And we've seen already that it's the Holy Spirit that imparts the fear of the Lord. There's nothing we do that deserves or makes us qualify it is the Holy Spirit, 100%. But it's also the Holy Spirit that encourages us and gives us strength. And we need to emphasize that these two are in balance. And that the one does not operate without the other. A lot of you would say, but what we need is encouragement. What we need is a strengthening. But if you seek encouragement from the Lord without the fear, of the, God, uh, the fear of Lord, it will not do for you what you need. The comfort of the Holy Spirit must be balanced with the fear of the Lord. The reverent awe of the Lord. In other words, this realization of constantly obeying the first commandment this realization that you're on the narrow path and that you cannot put a half a step wrong. That is the reverent awe of the Lord that we serve. So incidentally, we also see the pattern for church growth here. It starts with the fear of the Lord. Then, peace comes. After peace, encouragement and strengthening. And then, growth. That's the order. And it's all from the Holy Spirit. 
the Psalms and the Proverbs have many, many warnings and blessings related to the fear of the Lord. Most of them are in the corner post this morning. The fear of the Lord is mentioned 125 times in the Bible. Job 28 concludes that the fear of the Lord is the only source of wisdom. So how does it work in our lives today? We can imagine the Israelites, what would it be, nearly 5,000 years ago, seeing the Lord come down on the mountain and the holy smoke, and they were terrified. But what does it mean for us today? Well, the New Testament continues on this platform and continues to educate us on how the fear of the Lord is a blessing and an absolute requirement. 2 Chronicles 16 verse 9 says that the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth. King James says goes to and fro on the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. So it means the Lord, His eyes as the Holy Spirit, is looking for a certain type of person to show Himself strong on behalf of that person. And what is the one aspect that the Spirit is looking for? It's looking for a fully committed heart, a heart that is turned 100% to God. So do you see we right back at the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. Serve the Lord with your heart, your mind, and your soul. A fully committed heart means that there's no area of your heart, not even 1% that is turned away from God. It's an irreversible commitment that you step out of the world and into faith. And if you are confronted by this, this morning, it's a good thing. Take that step because the Holy Spirit will reveal knowledge to you and blessing that you would never have before making that commitment. The fear of the Lord is first, and encouragement, growth, comes second. Psalm 147 reveals something about the aspect that God is looking for. He's not looking for anything deserved in man. He's not interested in your strength, because He puts kingdoms in place. He created the all-powerful stars in the universe, he does not looking for your strength or your anything, your intellect, nothing. What's the one thing that would qualify you for the Lord showing himself strong on your behalf? It's one thing. It's a fully committed heart. That's all that it needs. Psalm 147 says the, the Lord's pleasure, his pleasure is not in the strength of the horse nor his delight in the legs of the warrior. He, the Lord, delights in those who fear him, in those who put their hope in his unfailing love. Those are the ones that the Lord shows up for and proves himself strong for. Again, if you're confronted by this, make the decision today. Have courage. Make the commitment because there will be great change in your life, amazing change in your life.
But how do we make this commitment? How do we get ourselves from putting ourselves up here to putting ourselves down there? So the first step is to realize your depravity. Realize and admit to yourself that your heart is not 100% turned towards God. Our sinful nature makes it impossible for us to serve God in the way the Lord describes. And that's why the law, the law has always been the point towards the need for Jesus. You realizing that you cannot keep the first commandment is the first step in realizing that you need a solution. And if you cannot do it, who's going to do it? Because you realize that the only thing that can save you from the wrath of God is God Himself. There's nobody above Him or beside Him that can help you. The only solution comes from God. But that realization that you need the solution comes from the fear of the Lord, understanding who He is in the first place, and then realizing that He's put a solution in place, a divinely ordained solution to protect us from His wrath. So step one is realize that your heart is sinful. Admit it. Stop pretending that we are worth what we think we're worth. We've just read in Psalm that the rocks in the mountain have more sense of who God is than we have. And without the Holy Spirit's help, we have no chance of realizing who He is. The second step is to be teachable and willing to seek advice. And the first source of teaching is the Holy Spirit. And continue to pray. Ask the Lord that the Holy Spirit will open your eyes to the truth and to His glory. The second source of teaching is the Word of God. And we know that we need to read every day and look for the treasure in the Word as you would for silver and gold. So search for it relentlessly. And the third source of teaching is human preaching. Now, Hebrews 13, verse 7 and 17 speak about the attitude we should have towards the people that rule in the church. And I know a lot of people have a problem with the word rule. But yet, here it is in God's word. In His great provision, He's put men in place to rule over His body and rule in His body, His church. And we need to accept that the Lord uses people to teach His children. And so allow me to conclude from Exodus 20. I'll, I'll just read again from verse 18. Because I want us to think about again how these people reacted when they saw the glory of God. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled in fear. So now you can ask, what type of fear were they having? 
Was it human fear? Was it godly fear? They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. So do you see, they were humanly afraid of God because they stayed at a distance. Moses said to the people, don't be afraid, don't have this human fear. Because God has come to test you so that the fear of the Lord, the reverent fear of the Lord, will keep you from sinning. So Moses saw what was happening. The people were having a human frightening reaction to God. Why? Because God is frightening. What would we do if we see the smoke coming down on the mountain and the thunder and lightning and the trumpet sounds? But the people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. So do you see that without the fear of the Lord, you cannot really appreciate the extent of the work and life of Jesus Christ. Without understanding who God is and the wrath that His nature demands for sin, we cannot truly appreciate who Christ is. And if we cannot see the work of Christ as taught in the Bible then the Bible is also very clear that if you are not in Christ, you are under God's curse. You are in God's wrath. There's only two positions. The one is hidden in Christ. The other is standing under the wrath of God. There's no, there's no middle ground. So what does it mean to be cursed by God? Some of you might have heard the sermon of R.C. Sproul where he talked about the curse motif and he used the blessing of Numbers 6 and turned it around to give us a slight idea of what it means to be cursed by God. And it went like this. May the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment without grace. May the Lord turn His back towards you and remove His peace from you. Awful. Do you realize that this is the curse that Jesus bore for you? This is what Jesus endured on the cross. His Father turned His face away. His Father turned the magnificence of His face away from Jesus. And Jesus endured the full curse of God, the wrath of God. And so when you come to this realization of who God is and who Jesus is and what He did for you, that will draw you towards Christ. That would make you understand why you need Christ. Because you understand what He's done for you. You understand the wrath that He's protecting you from. That's why we need Jesus. That's what He has saved us from. And when you are in Christ, the blessing of number six follows. 
and the curse that we deserve is turned into a blessing. Not because we deserve a blessing, we deserve the curse. But in God's good nature and through the work of Christ, He turns the curse into a blessing. And so for the children hidden in Christ, the blessing follows from God our Father. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine on you. And may He be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His face towards you and give you peace. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Almighty God and Heavenly Father, Lord, how magnificent You are. Holy, holy, holy is our Lord God Almighty. He who is, who was, and who is to come. Lord, we lift our hearts to You and we bow before Your throne. Lord, we are so sinful and presumptuous and arrogant. May today we see a glimpse of Your glory. Lord, and may You bring us to the realization of how small we are in comparison to Your might. Lord, may Your name be glorified in heaven and on earth. May Your name be exalted above all. And may whatever we do bring glory to Your name, even in our sinfulness. Lord, we lift this up to You through Your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.